0: Well, hey, good morning! Good to see all of you. Um, it is a really good day, not only because we're wrapping up uh, this series, but because it's October, man. Fall in Michigan, it's so pretty. Uh, until the leaves are in my front yard, and I'm not pretty. I'm annoyed about that, especially when you have rich neighbors. You all of them have like lawn service, and I'm out there with my like battery powered leaf blower, just trying to keep up. So, anyway, maybe you can't relate, but. But that's, that's our uh, struggle. <laughs> so, uh, but seriously, I'm really glad that you're here. I want you to uh, turn to somebody close to you or somebody in your row and just say, I'm hungry. Just turn to somebody and say, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. At least I'm not the only one. Um, but not only does this kind of time where my body starts to trigger like, hey, John, you need to put some fuel in here. Uh, or else we're gonna crash. Like I, I get hungry on this time every single day. But secondly, uh today for me, and hopefully you came this way too, I'm spiritually hungry. Like I am hungry for what God wants to say to us. And, and full disclosure, Lindsay and I have been homesick all week long. Um, I am on so much day quill, it's not even legal, probably right now. And so think some things I may say just Pretend like I didn't say them or go watch another service, you know, like this uh, full disclosure uh, may get a little interesting in here. Uh, so I'm really glad that you came. And uh, if I cough or I have to take a drink, just give me a ton of grace. All right. Sound good to you. And I will stay away from you with my germs. Deal. Uh, if you're online, good choice uh, today. But some of you know, like when it comes to hunger, typically, again, I have this rhythm. So we'll do second service. As soon as everyone's left the building, the doors are locked, I get in my car after Sunday. My first thought is like, what's lunch? And maybe yours is too, but that's like my first thought even during second service, like mid-sermon. I'm like, man, what am I going to have for lunch? I'm starting to get a little hungry in here, starting to hear my, (laughs) my own stomach rumble. And if you've been around center for any length of time, you know that I have an unhealthy relationship and obsession with Chipotle. Any other kind of burrito Mexican fans in the room? Okay, perfect. So uh, you are my people. I just love it. There's something about it that's comforting. I grew up on Mexican food. And Chipotle is kind of like a waypoint for us when we travel even. I mean, it's just like a place that that we really enjoy so much. So I was like, Lindsay, I've got a great idea for like a birth announcement. when We have Lennon, our first kid. Like we should uh, do this, you know, like just a little (laughs) – baby in a burrito type of thing, you know, so she didn't go for it, shocking, because uh, she's smart and wise and intelligent, uh, but nonetheless, I tried, so all that to say, I had this moment, it's this probably a couple months ago now, where I asked Lindsay what she wanted for lunch, we both agreed Chipotle sounds great, so on the way home, I was like, I'll pick it up, I'll hit it on my way home. I pick it up, I get there, kind of lay it all out. Lennon goes down for a nap. It's just Lindsay and I. I'm like, oh, I just, I did this right, man. I got everything she wanted on her bowl. I got everything I wanted on my burrito. I got the chips, got the side of guacamole. It's perfect. So I lay it out, got the LaCroix on the table, just ready to go. Everything like, set out perfectly. She, she sits down and kind of looks confused. It's like, What's up? Are you, are you feeling okay? She's like, um, You didn't buy queso. And I said, we don't ever get queso. And she's like, yes, we do. You get it every time. Like, she is, she starts to get, like, frustrated at me. She's like, yeah, you do. You get it, like, every time. And I was like, Lindsay, no, we do not. We do not buy queso and chips every single time. I said, I buy chips, but I don't buy queso every time. And she's like, no, you buy it every time, and you didn't buy it this time. And I was like, wow. Like, we had this 30-second blow-up over a side of queso. And, and she was right, like – consistently I do buy it. And in my head, I just totally blanked in the moment. Like she totally justified in her Chipotle fueled anger. And so I asked her, I was like, do you want me to go back and get it? And then she says the three words, if you are married, you don't ever want to hear your spouse say these. She said, no, that's fine. I was like, oh shoot, (laughs) this is going to be a tough lunch. Uh, I'm going to wash your feet later or something. I don't know, but So anyway, all that to say, um, what what I kind of learned about, if you've been in a relationship, friendship, roommate, marriage, you get all this. Even church relationships on some level, this is how this works. But the psychological thing that took place in that conversation was what they call self-definition. Self-definition. You may remember this guy, Gary, wrote a book called The Five Love Languages many years ago about how people receive and give love self-definition is really Lindsay in that moment, she got to, she determines what good Chipotle lunch is for her. And it's her bowl, her way with a side of chips and queso. And, And for me in that moment, it was like, I was trying to define how she was supposed to enjoy Chipotle. Are you tracking with where we're going here? So, so, so I was trying to define it. She's trying to define it, but the only way true love works is when you respond to that person, that spouse, that relationship, that significant other's self-definition. They get to say, here is how I am loved. Here is how I receive love. Like, it would be an awful marriage. We were married almost nine years. It would be a terrible marriage for us if I kept saying, no, this this is your love language, Lindsay. Listen to me. Like, it's not what you think it is. I know what it is. And she's like, no, it's not. This is... It's been nine years together. Like, this is how I receive love. I want the queso. Like, this is how this works. And as a husband, I have to learn that. I have to understand that. If I didn't understand that, my marriage would be garbage otherwise. Like, self-definition of of how she receives that is so, so important. As we wrap up the series, let me just tell you, God has preferences when it comes to worship. God had self-defined in the word how he prefers as a human being, as a person, just like he is God, to be worshipped. And here's why. He understands that worship builds the house. Worship builds the house. That's not to say that we're building the capital C church by worshipping. Jesus builds the church. Scripture is clear on that. Jesus is the one who right now is actively through People just like you and me building the church, building in the kingdom of God. But scripture is also really evident that that worship, our, our role as priests before the Lord, ministering to him and to others, actually is a thing that builds up the local church. It builds up our community. It builds our faith. That's why we do it every single weekend. It's not a throwaway. It's actually one of the core callings on all of us as Christians. Let me take you for one of the last times to Exodus 29. This is a passage and even chapters we've interacted with over the last number of weeks. And I want to take you to verse 1. If you have a Bible or a physical, uh, uh, sorry, a device, you can bring that out now. But in Exodus 29, we're going to start in verse 1, and we'll kind of take it from there. So here's what the Bible says. This is what you are to do to consecrate them. Now, who's them? Well, them is the priests. Them is the people that God had kind of set apart to say, these are the people leading worship. These are the people who are going to kind of protect the tabernacle. They're going to make sure the sacrifices are in order. They're going to make sure that that worship is at the first kind of first place in the Israelite community, the pursuit of God's presence. They're going to to be the ones, kind of the guardrails for the community. So they may serve me as priests. Take a young bull, two rams without defect. Verse 2. And from the finest wheat flour make round loaves without yeast, thick loaves without yeast, and with olive oil mixed in, and thin loaves without yeast, and brushed with olive oil, put them in a basket, and present them along with the bowl and the two rams. Does it sound like God has some preferences here? He's picky about the bread. Like I'm not even that picky. I like bread. I just like any bread. And he's like, No, it's gotta be this kind of bread, you gotta put this oil on it, and it's gotta be this thickness. And this is the the kind of meat I want. Like, he's really, really specific with these priests about the sacrifice. Verse 4. Then bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting, or the tabernacle, like we've been talking about, and wash them with water. Take the garments, these priestly garments. You can read this in Exodus 28. And dress Aaron with the tunic and the robe of the ephod, the ephod itself and the breastpiece fasten the ephod on him by uh, by its skillfully woven waistband put the turban on his head attach the sacred emblem to the turban take the anointing oil and anoint him by pouring it on his head and then bring his sons dress them in tunics and fasten caps on them then tie sashes on Aaron and his sons the priesthood is theirs by a lasting ordinance. God is saying, like, this is the way. We've set this out in the community. This is how it's going to be. Then you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Ordain or ordination, kind of this really biblical term for setting something apart, a chosen uh, group of people. They were ordained to do this work. It was God commanding them to do it. Now, in that nine verses we just read, you can tell God cares about what they're wearing, what they're Serving, how they were serving, who was there? I mean, he, God is really, really specific here in Exodus 29. Like the priestly role was not something you're like, I, I want to sign up for that. Like it was an intense job. It was a 24 seven consuming role for these these people who were set apart. It was uncomfortable. I mean, we can't get into all the details, but like the ephod, that thing you you just read about, like you'd put it on almost like as a vest. And I just pulled a picture of my Facebook, off my Facebook profile picture here of me kind of the other Saturday doing a quick quick workout. And uh, why, do you, why do you laugh? That's so rude. You think about it? Come on. No, I'm just kidding. But um, the weighted vest is something this guy's wearing in this military exercise. But this is very similar. Weighted vests. Some of you maybe work out with these. You put them on. You can put different level of plates in them. Up to like 110 pounds is like the the heaviest one I read about. And this ephod, if you think about it, this heavy set of garments in like 85 degrees sun in the middle of a desert, I mean, this is not a comfortable, it's not like, oh yeah, I want to do that because I got AC in the tabernacle. Like, that's not happening here. It, it was costly. It, it, it was hard to be a priest. It really mattered. It was also sacrificial. I mean, you see these priests and it, just a couple verses we read, they're setting themselves apart and they're also in charge of bringing sacrifices to God Himself. Like they're picking out the bulls, they're picking out the bread, they're making sure they got enough olive oil. Like those are their roles as a priest. And thirdly, this role you can you can tell this from even just a couple verses we read. It was important. It truly mattered how the priests interacted, how they behaved, what they how they approached the Lord. Because in essence, one historian put it this way. Priests essentially were a walking tabernacle. They were a walking house for God's presence. They kind of signaled when they walked through the community, based on what they're wearing, based on how they carried themselves, how they were approaching the tabernacle, like they were intentional and and, and consumed with the pursuit of God's presence. It really mattered to them. How priests approached God's presence mattered deeply. And I want to make... Kind of the argument to you that what we bring to God on a Sunday really matters too. Just like the priests, this walking set of tabernacles, if you will, through the community, what you and I bring, and that's already an assumption. The assumption is not that you just come and and give and get. The assumption is that all of us come and we we give too. You get in the giving, but but you're here to give. This is one of the reasons that. The Cain and Abel story just jumps off the page to me every single time. Like Genesis 4, Adam and Eve have two kids, Cain and Abel, these sons. You may remember the story. And they're both required to bring something to the altar. So Cain is like, okay, I got some like leftover this, leftover that. I'm just going to bring that. I'm not going to bring my best stuff because it's the best stuff. I need it. Abel brings the best stuff. What ends up happening is this kind of dispute over the altar takes place it literally says in Genesis 4, God did not look with favor upon Cain's offering because it wasn't his best. He was failing in his job as a worshiper, failing in his job as, as a priest, and ends up killing his brother Abel out of jealousy and envy and rage because God looks upon Abel's offering with favor, this guy who brought his very best of all that he had. The theologian Donald Burke kind of summarizes that story this way. He says, Cain's failure at the altar leads to his failure in the field. Theology, which is a study and pursuit of God, and ethics, or what we do, are inseparable. Burke's point is that worship drives behavior. What you think about worship is going to drive how you interact, not just on a Sunday morning, but when it comes to all of the rest of your life. Theology and ethics are inseparable. And Aaron the, the priest that we just read about in Exodus 29 would have felt that more personally than anybody else. You read on. Go to Leviticus 10, just for fun sometime. You jump into that story, and what you read is that two of Aaron's sons, they die at a worship service. Same thing. They bring to God what he did not ask for. They say, hey God, you want this incense. You want this kind of fire. We think you would like this. And God's like, No, 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 that's not how this works. Like, this is a relationship, just like in a marriage or just like in a friendship. Like, I have self-defined already what I long for, what I desire, and what you're bringing is not it. They end up losing their lives over this thing. It's incredibly tragic. And you may say, ma'am, okay. And, and I thought this too. Yeah, yeah, okay, John, I get all that. I get all that. The Old Testament God was a, a cranky old man. Was way too picky about his worship services, but thank the Lord we live in the New Testament reality, right? Jesus is our high priest, he's our worship leader, he sets the tone for how worship. He is way more chill about stuff than his dad in the Old Testament, right? Like that would be the assumption. Well, maybe, maybe. I, I want to take you to, to another book of the Bible, skipping ahead into the New Testament. First Peter. Chapter 2, the reference will be on the screen. I'm going to skip over there right now. And I want to read you just a couple verses. This is Second, uh, 1 Peter 2, and we're going to scan down to verse 4, but all 10 verses apply. And this is what it says in verse 4. As you come to him, talking about Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones. This is architecture language. Maybe you're in building. This is... This is construction language. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual, what's this word? Read it out with me. Spiritual what? House. To be a holy, what's the next word? Priesthood. To be holy priesthood. What Peter's saying is that it's not just Aaron and his boys anymore. It's you and it's me. We have a calling, a responsibility, a priestly role, if you will, in our in our discipleship, in our walk with God to bring him our best, to bring the sacrifice. And the sacrifice is no longer bulls. It's not not about what kind of olive oils mix into your flour. It's about are you bringing your whole self to this service, to this moment of worship. The New Testament actually elevates worship, even higher than the Old Testament. And it elevates it so much so to say that it's not just important like what we do and when we sing together it's not just important like we should do it it's a priority it's important for you it's important for me it's important that that all of us understand as we follow Christ this is our role too and i feel like it'd be a miss to like preach on worship to to kind of t- finish this series and talk about all this stuff without acknowledging uh, the person who tends to lead us uh, on a Sunday morning in worship. And it's not me, even though that's part of my role. Uh, I want to take a moment just honor Peter. <laughs> he, he, I did this in first service, so now he knows at least. But he didn't know him first, so he was quite embarrassed because he would never let me do it. But here's what I love and, and I, I respect and admire about Peter. Not only is what you see on a Sunday morning how he is the rest of the week, which I think is a value. We care about that as a church, that, that we're vulnerable and transparent, that what you see is what you get. Like hopped up on Dayquil John on the stage is going to be the same as when you talked to him in the lobby. It gets <laughs> similar with Peter. Peter's a heart of integrity. Peter's pure-hearted. He loves Jesus, He's trying to honor him in his marriage, honor him in his leadership. That, that all matters. But here's what I really respect about you, Peter is that Peter is a worshiper first and not a worship leader first. you hear that, the difference? Like, I, I've been in multiple rooms with Peter where it, he, it, I was a worship pastor for four years. I remember I'd go to other churches, other services, and I would sit back with a critical eye. I didn't like that guitar tone. I The slides were bad. That worship leader's off pitch. But I'd just go through like a critical eye, and I've been in multiple places where Peter is just He's there to worship. It's not about criticizing. He doesn't come up to me after. It's like, oh, man, did you hear? That was terrible. Like he, he's there to pursue God's presence. And friends, don't miss that. That matters. But that calling is not just Peter's. Like, worship, when you think about it, is not a worship team's job. It's your job. If you follow Christ. If you, if you don't, you're asking questions, you're off the hook today. But if, you, if you're a Christian, you call yourself a Christ follower, this is our job. And so sometimes I walk into services on a Sunday morning. It's like God, the Holy Spirit just speaks to me. And I'm like, I'm tired. I have too much Dayquil in my system, whatever it is. My, my kids were up all night. I don't really feel like raising my hands. I don't feel like singing. And the Holy Spirit's like, hey, John, do your job. Do your job. This is not Peter's job. Do your job. Like You, you are there to bring God something. You're there to serve God as a priest, And, man, on my study break this summer, I had some time away. God totally upended how I thought about Sunday mornings, worship, what it means to be a priesthood. I mean, he just, like, took what I knew and flipped it upside down. It was like, you've been thinking about this all wrong. You've been thinking about church as a place where you come and you serve people. And I want to reframe that, John, to say you come to serve me and in serving me and blessing me and trying to say, God, what would you like today? Do you want queso? I'll bring you queso. You know, like I will be the, I will let you self define your, your, how worship is meaningful to you. And I will bring you that. And he wants to bring new life and breathe new life into how you experience worship too. Not just me. This message is not just for me. There may be some of you who, who that, this portion, I've had people comment over the years, multiple people. It's like, man, I was like, what did you think about Sunday? And one guy said to me, this is a couple months ago, if I could just skip all the music and go right to the sermon, I would love Sundays. And I was like, wow, I'm honored. That's great. And then the second thing I said was, you're totally missing the point. You're missing the point. Like, like we are here for something much bigger than 30 minutes and hear John talk in Babylon about what he thinks about the Bible. Like, we are here for something so much greater than that. You have a, you have a job, do your job. You're going to get more out of it when you come with something to give, not just something to receive. And it's in giving that you actually receive because worship builds the house. This is how the church works. This is why Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it, but he says it to a person. He says it to Peter, who we just read. And Peter's saying, this is what church is like. It's a a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a set-apart people who, who didn't know mercy, but now have experienced mercy. This is what he says. This is uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen people. Talking about us, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And here's why you are all those things. That you may declare the what? The praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, you were disbanded, you were disjointed, you cared way too much about culture and politics and money and sexuality and all these other conversations, but now you are the people of God. You didn't have mercy at first, and now you've received the gift of mercy. It changes everything. This is the kind of the core here of the gospel. Now here's where it gets fun. Like I, Lindsay and I have been able to be a part of this church for around five and a half years. And I would say, I've had conversation after conversation where people say, like, we appreciate worship as a church. And I, I, I'm thankful for that. Again, I was a worship pastor. I've been a worship leader for a long time. Peter will tell you, I am super picky about what happens on a Sunday morning. None of it's accidental to me or to us. Like, I really care. I want it to feel like we thought about it because God's honoring of it. He deserves it. But, but I've noticed some things that can happen. This is true of me, too. I can appreciate worship, but doesn't mean, and I think this is natively true for us at Center, sometimes we appreciate it, but we do not engage it. We're like, man, worship was good today, and that meant that the team did a good job. They played a song that was excellent. We don't engage it. We don't lift our voice. We don't lift our hands. We don't bring our whole sacrifice. We don't bring our whole self. We're just like Cain. We don't bring it to God we don't see ourselves in that role we don't see ourselves as priests we're Like we're not Catholic why are you talking about that anyway like we don't see ourselves as playing that and I asked someone who is fairly new to our church she's been coming for about two years she loves this church she's really involved And said how would you describe like a typical Sunday morning at center church like what would you describe growing up uh in church out of church like how would you describe and she's like um quiet quiet that's what she said she's like quiet like people are very quiet like people don't really talk or sing too loud or do anything too crazy. like they could just be quiet And I was like wow I mean that hit me obviously there's times like I connect I've shared all summer I connect with God in solitude like times of silence times of solitude driving in my car I don't play music I don't listen to podcasts like that connects that helps me connect to God but there are times where God self-defines and he says lift up a shout of praise and because I love God, I'm going to shout. And there's times he says, I lift my hand. David says, I lift my hand to you in prayer. There's times where I walk in on a Sunday morning, and the first song starts playing, and I'm like, oh, man, I would love to be in my bed right now. <laughs> I'm just not here for it. I don't have the energy for it. And the Holy Spirit is like, lift your hands. Change your posture. Let that direct, like drive and direct your heart. It will change you. That's why we do it. Like, I, I know a bunch of people here, and I know that for many of us, like, the reasons we worship is not to impress other people, it's because we truly love God. And that's what He wants to do for all of us because worship builds the house. See, here's what I found, and I believe this, even over as we've talked through this series singing, lifting your hands, moving your body, engaging your whole self, giving money, baptism, taking communion, agreeing out loud with God's word. All these things are peripheral to the consumer Christian. They're all take-it-or-leave-it things. Because worship, if you're just consuming, is about, did I like that or not? And I choose, am I going to engage that or not? It's kind of like a buffet. It's like a Netflix show on, on, in like real life. Like, Do I want that? Do I not? But to the priest, the one who sees themselves as serving God and then serving others, oh, that's the good stuff that's the chips and queso of, of Sunday morning. It's like, I'm here for that. I need that. There's something that connects with like the deepest part of who I am when, when I decide to give that, to identify, God, what do you want? Okay, this is what you want? I'm going to give that to you because I love you. This is how worship should work. But can I can't let you in on something. I remember the first time I read the chapter Isaiah 6. Isaiah was a prophet. In the first couple chapters, his leader dies. The whole nation is disoriented. He has this moment with God's glory. It's the most profound, one of the most profound, if not the most profound, teaching on worship in like 10 verses. I mean, you should go read it. It'll teach you almost everything you need to know. But in that, Isaiah has a vision of God's glory descending into the place where he is. Smoke. Cloud. I mean, all the things from Exodus we just read, it all just kind of falls on him. And in that, he literally sees angelic beings floating around each other. And he hears them declaring loudly, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Why is that significant? Because what Isaiah doesn't identify is they were saying that to him. Well, saying it to the prophet. The angelic beings were also not saying it to God. They weren't saying it to God's glory. You know who they were saying it to? It was each other. They're literally encircling this throne. It's what theologians describe as antiphonal singing. They're saying to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's a dialogue, not a monologue for them in Isaiah's vision. And Friends, sometimes that we get caught up in thinking like worship is singular. It's one-sided. It happens from a stage to me, and I receive. And what a priesthood is, is we're all in this. Like, we're all doing it. Right? We're, all, we're all worshiping. We're all lifting our hands. We're all giving our money. We're all doing radical acts of obedience and kindness during the week. Like, we are, we are all in this. And I thought it'd be fun uh, to put on my teacher hat since I'm sitting down and just try that. Literally show you what I mean. This is what's happening in Isaiah 6. And I think this is a healthy model for us to understand. I think it matters when it comes to worship. And so I'm going to say something that, again, if you're not a Jesus follower, you're not a believer, that's fine. I'm so glad you're here. You're welcome. Stay here. Keep coming. But if you call yourself a Christian, especially if you call yourself a a person who calls like center is your home, I want you to, to try this with me. And I'm gonna say something that most of us would believe. God is good. Feels simple, right? And maybe you grew up in a church was like, all the time and all the time, God is good. Like we're we're not doing that. That's a cop out. We're gonna do something a little bit more challenging. When I say God is good, I simply want you to respond like you were responding to me in like normal life. So you may say, that's right. Or you may say, Wow. Or you may, may say, amen. Or you may say, yes, he is. Just something that's normal to you. I'm not asking you to, like, put on a weird, like, churchy presentation here. I'm just asking you to be, like, real. Does it make sense what we're going to? Okay, so we're actually going to try this. So I'm going to say God is good. I'm going to count to three. I just want you to say back to me, antiphonal singing. I want you to say back, like, yes, wow, yeah, come on. I don't know. Like, put on your, don't do it with a fake Southern accent like I just did, but, But try it, you know. So here's what we're going to do. So I'll say God is good, count to three, and just say something back to me. Make it a conversation, all right? God is good, three, two, one. Exactly, that's true. Come on, that's good. I mean, this is essentially, if you think about it, what the angels encircling the glory of God are doing. They're saying it to one another. Friends, there's power in that. That's why worship builds the house, because you get in a room with people who believe things the same, who are affirming, God, you are worthy, you are glorious, the, the atmosphere, the, the kind of thing we're doing, it just, it changes. Close with this. I remember, um, this is probably a month ago now, our, our daughter Lennon is obsessed with bath time, obsessed. Maybe you're too old to remember bath time, but she loves it. I mean, I think she intentionally gets more dirty at dinner so that we have to bathe her before bed. You know, she's one of those kids. And so we were having pesto pasta the other night, and she's just like, it's all over. It's in every hair follicle. It's in every roll on her legs. It's in her Crocs that she has to wear for dinner for some reason. It's in all these different things. Like, it just, our house smells like pesto, And so Lynx and I both look at each other like, okay, we got to give her a bath. Like, this is pretty obvious we're not putting her in her crib with with pesto pasta all over her uh, because we're not bad parents, okay? That's why. So turn on the bath. She goes nuts. She loves it. She's literally kicking in her high chair like, take me out of here. So we unstrap her, drop her on the floor, and she runs like Hussein Bolt just straight into the bathroom The bath is barely filled up. She's already, like, flipping her leg over, trying to get in it, getting her toys out of the cabinet. It's, like, all in. She loves bath time. So Lindsay typically is the one who kind of gets down next to her, washes her hair. She's much more gentle than me. And I'll, like, sit on the toilet or sit on the floor next to her and just kind of enjoy it, be a part of it, because it's fun. Like, Lennon loves it. We love doing it as parents. Uh, It's a fun activity. And so the other day, we're giving her a bath, getting all the pesto pasta out. And I find myself, and, and I've shared with some of you, excuse me, the last couple months for me has been really stressful. It's like some of the last, that's sem- my last semester of my grad program. It's Just a lot of extra work. I've been way more like kind of taxed mentally than I have been in a long time. And what happens to me, maybe like what happens to you is when those seasons occur, I tend to withdraw. I tend to sit and scroll on my phone mindlessly. I tend to waste time tend to want to eat out more. Just kind of like feel comfortable, like numb it out. That, that's me. Maybe you're like that. And so Lena's taking a bath. She's squealing. She's giggling. She's like just super cute. I mean, you saw the picture. I mean, she's awesome at bath time. She's so fun. And Lindsay's washing her hair, getting all the pasta out. It's like an awesome parenting scene. Like she's not screaming. She's not crying. It's just perfect. And I find myself sitting there scrolling on some random person's Facebook feed, looking at their, like, Cabo vacation pictures. We're just sitting there, like, scrolling mindlessly. And Lindsay turns around and kind of sees this, and she literally, like, slaps my knee. She's like, John, what are you doing? I was like, uh, uh, reading the Bible. <laughs> and I was not. I, I said, I'm just looking at some random person's Facebook pictures. She's like, Lennon's right here. Like, it's bath time. Like, pay attention. And I literally remember saying, like, sorry, I'm back. Like, I'm back. I'm here. Put the phone back down. Locked back into to bath time with Lennon for the next couple minutes before bed. And, and Lindsay was totally right to call me out. That She is 100% right. She's not the bad guy. I'm the bad guy. And what hit me as I reflected on that moment is I think in so many ways, worship is kind of like that moment for us. Like, when we give money, We support the mission, not just of Center Church, but like the kingdom of God as a whole. We are saying, God, I tend to hoard money. I tend to want to make it and stow it away or spend it on things that I want to spend it on. And when I'm giving, it's actually a way for me to say, God, sorry, I'm back. I know your heart for me is to be generous. I know your heart for me is to to worship you, not just with lifting of hands and voices, but you say in the Bible you care about my money, you want all of my heart which includes my treasure, the things that I earn. You want that? So I'm going to give it to you. I'm sorry, I'm back. When we lift our hands in worship, maybe maybe you're like me, where you tend to come in it's like, I don't really feel like doing that. Do I really have to like physically engage my body? Can't I just worship in my head? When I lift my hands at 1030 in the morning to, to God, it's a way to say, God, I know you want this. Sorry, I'm back. I'm back. I'm here. You got all my attention. Got my hands. Got my yacht. Like, I'm, I'm here. When, when we meet somebody new, maybe you've been a part of this church for a long time. Sundays are time to come and meet people and talk to people you already know. You see uh, someone who's new to our community, new to Center Church, walk through the doors, you're like, I don't think I've ever seen that person before. Which is easier, by the way, with two services than it ever has been. And you take a step to go meet that person, you take a step to get to know them, to share your story, to just thank them for coming to a new place because going to a new place is weird. It's a way to say, God, I, I tend to make church about what I like. People I already know, friendships I already have, relationships that are established. But you say that every single person in this community matters to you. And so I'm going to go to them. I'm going to love them. I'm going to shake their hand. I'm going to ask their kids' names. It's a way to say, sorry, I'm back. I'm back. I know you've called me to be a priest, to serve you. That's a way I serve you and then serve others. Maybe for you, it's singing. It's like that guy's like, man, if I could skip the music, it'd be awesome. I, I'm terrible at singing. I just want to hear the sermon. where I don't have to talk. And at the same time, God says, you use your voice for a lot of other things all week. Maybe it's making hard decisions at work. Maybe it's cussing out a spouse. Maybe it's telling jokes you shouldn't tell. I don't know what it is, but we all use our voices to glorify and to worship, a ton of other things during the week. And when we sing, we lift our voice to God who actually is deserving of our voice, who gave you and I a voice, who gave you the lung capacity to breathe out worship. It's a way to say, God, sorry, I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. Maybe for you, it's just showing up awake. You know, like God has blessed our church with kind of a variety of ages some of us Sunday mornings are like oh man I'm again I was up at 4 a.m. like I was just waiting for 10 30 some of us it's like I woke up at 10 10 and I just made it at 10 35 you know like and I've been there I've been in seasons like that and I, and I can tend to say God this is my time God, I only have two days off from work. Why are you making me want to get up early? Or I don't want to serve because I've got to be here a certain night during the week or earlier on Sundays than normal. I don't want to do any of that stuff. And when God asks for your time, when he asks for, for all of us to show up awake and attentive to what he wants to say, it's a way to just say, God, I'm going to get up a little bit earlier because I'm back. I'm sorry I'm back. You have my attention. When we respond, when we respond, to the word we respond to the Holy Spirit when we come forward for prayer or we say amen when when God's word is taught and spoken. Again, you're not hyping me up by doing that. I don't need your energy. I'm good. I've got either day or caffeine in me, it's depending on the Sunday. And I'll be fine. But saying amen or come on or that's good, antiphonal singing, whatever that means for you, verbally agreeing with God's word when it's being preached. And we are a church that believes in what God says. That's a way for us to say, God, sometimes I just want to consume your word. I just want to sit here and just take it in, receive it. Listen to what John learned instead of coming as a priest and saying, God, you got something for me. You don't want me to just hear your word. You want me to obey your word. It's a way to say, God, I'm back. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm back. So what I want to do is take just a few minutes and pray over all of us. Because a message like this doesn't really have a clear ending like what would be the worst thing for me i think is to say okay you want to get better at this here's three ways to prepare for next sunday morning but i can't change your behaviors i can't change your alarm clock i could give you lennon she'll wake you up plenty early for church but what i want god to do in all of us is to stir our heart and remind us that we are a priesthood a chosen nation worshipers at the core that's what you were built for and we have something to give, not just something to get. Worship, friends, builds the house. And so I want to pray and just ask God to do that in us. Would you join me? Father, we sit here full, fully aware that your Holy Spirit is here. And we just collectively say that when it comes to worship, When it comes to bringing a sacrifice, not of a bull or a ram or olive oil or bread, but that you ask for our lives, our whole self, our hands, our yod, our voice, our heart, our body, our time, our attention, our energy. We just want to say, sorry, we're back. Back. We're ready to hear from you and and ready to give. Give you the worship and the love and the adoration that you have self defined that brings you pleasure, that brings you a smile. That's what we're here for. And we get so much out of that when that happens in the right order. We come for us, Lord. Convict us, challenge us, help us to repent of the times where we come and make church about what we like, what we prefer. songs we like to sing we need your holy spirit to just reorient that for us so that's our prayer we come before you with thanksgiving the fact you're already doing that and we worship you for who you are and what you've done in jesus name amen amen church would you stand we're going to worship in response as we close